Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. I'm I'm Alex Youngblood. I'm with Joe McCall. How are you doing? Hey Joe? Alex. <laughs> How are you, Alex? I'm doing good, Joe. <laughs> today is You want to start again? <laughs> no, no, no. T- today is switcheroo day. I'm just kidding. Oh, we're switching back and forth. Okay, I got uh, you. I'm just kidding. I just wanted to do something different to get people to wake up and realize you woke me up. Yeah, well, this is the Real Estate Investing Mastery show and um, we're glad to be here. And we got a special guest today, but first we want to tell you guys, check out realestateinvestingmastery.com. Uh, we have a free fast cash survival kit that's been downloaded thousands and thousands, probably tens of thousands of times. I've never looked at it. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I get people all the time that tell me how much they learned, how much they get out of it. And uh, it's still really, really good, even though we did it a long time ago. Yeah. It's been like 2000, what? 12 maybe 2011 yeah do you still have the same va uh no i don't oh you got rid of that one well he kind of cheated on me a little bit and to make to make matters worse it's like uh what you would call (laughs) va soap operas i had another va and he actually got her pregnant (laughs) oh (laughs) <laughs> he took it upon himself to go train her. You are kidding me. <laughs> I'm dead serious. How often does that happen? I don't know. I mean, this is like, like I said, VA soap operas. I mean, I had no idea they had a relationship. And I mean, and he's married too. So he's married to a, to a lady he lives with. Oh and I guess gosh. over there in the Philippines, you can't get divorced. So even if you just like can't stand each other, you got to tolerate each other and live with each other. So he even had a, uh, while he's still married to his other lady or to his wife, he had another girlfriend and actually had a baby by her. And he was like, you know, uh, he, I'm a daddy for the first time. And he was telling me all this. And he's like, aren't you going to congratulate me? And I'm like, yeah, yeah congratulations. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, and then come to find out too, he goes and, um, gets my other VA pregnant and caused a whole bunch of uh, drama and um, not good morale, but I mean, it is what it is. I guess you're dealing with people and people are people. (laughs) Wow. I would, I never, we need to update our uh, fast cash survival kit with some uh, (laughs) like marriage counseling for VAs (laughs) or um, HR policies. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. So yeah. did you, it's kind of interesting. I'd never heard of that before. So did you hire a new VA yet or where are you at with that process? Um, well, I've got the, the VA, uh, the, the uh, female VA still okay. um, who was on the other side of that. And um, I've had another one in the past, but uh, he's kind of, he's, well, I pretty much say he's petered out. Um, it's very interesting when you deal with VAs and, you know, excuses and stuff like that. I think they go on to, to a class, you know, like how contractors go to a class to learn how to get more money out of you. How to do change um, orders. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's a class for VAs on excuses, and I swear this guy must have a million family members because somebody's dying every week. 
you know, oh my when somebody's dying or he's sick. And, but, and then I even got, I even got a, um, email from him the other day saying, Oh, I'm so sorry. I've been sick. Um, I'm going to be right back with you on Monday, getting back to get, getting back on this. I'm so looking forward to it. And he didn't show up on Monday. And then I get an email on Thursday. He's like, Oh, I'm just so sick again. I collapsed the other day. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, I think we're done. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. I mean, what do you do? Do you give people the benefit of the doubt or do you kind of sense the pattern and the excuses and family members are dying and sickness and all this kind of but stuff? You know, it's, you got I don't know how, like, you take that seriously because I've had VAs tell me before that a family member died. I can count at least three or four times when that's happened with different VAs. Okay. Well, there you go. Do you well, see maybe the, it's the true. Pattern? Well, maybe. So just VAs have, I don't want to sound inhumane or anything, but. Well, yeah, maybe. maybe. I mean, what if it's true? Every single VA I've dealt with says it. You're saying it, that your VAs are telling you this. Some of my other partners in different markets have had VAs who have said the same thing. I think there's a common denominator there. I mean, it's either the VA's um, health care for the family isn't that great, or they're all giving us the same excuses. You know, <laughs> that would be interesting, guys. If you are listening to this podcast and this has happened to you, <laughs> Then leave a review. I mean, not uh, go to our show, Real Estate Investing Mastery, and put in the comments when this has happened to you and how many times it's happened to you. And it'd be real curious, Alex, to see how many people put a comment on the on the blog about that. It would be. It'd be interesting to know how many people actually have real live VAs working for them and in what fashion. Because I think, and we could probably do a podcast on this all on its own. Um, we need to get to our guest, but yeah, I yeah. think. The business model is moving away from just being able to make quick offers on the phone and getting a bunch of deals from that because people are setting up shop in markets with like full sales staff and things like that to where that belly to belly is becoming more and more necessary. Yeah, and it's becoming more and more necessary that somebody answers the phone. Like when, yeah. when the seller yep. first calls. Yeah, that's yep. that's a whole podcast, and, and maybe we should just you and I shoot the breeze, do another yeah. episode, and yeah, talk I about mean, that. Do, on you know, does uh, does somebody answer the phone? Do people want to listen to a recorded message? Well, how can you a- answer all these live calls if you're sending out ten thousand postcards and they're all hitting at once? It's impossible for any answering service to keep up with that. You know? Sure. <laughs> so, I don't yeah, know if, I don't so know if there's a good answer. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of the. Uh, the East Asia is is Australia part of no it's its own continent that was yes. a st- real stupid question <laughs> that was going to be a real stupid question <laughs> yeah. but uh, Australia is real close to the Save Philippines no. I know I'm good um, so Reed Goosens from the Australia but is living in the US he's our guest today and uh, he's he has a podcast of his own how long have you been doing the podcast Reed uh, well, good morning, guys. I have only been doing the podcast since the beginning of the year. It's just a way to reach brand a wider new. audience. Yeah. So it's a brand new, fresh off the uh, fresh off the rank, and uh, just learning as much as I can and trying to get on as many different people's shows as possible. Hence why I'm on your guys' show. And yeah. I had Joe on the other day and had a really, really incredible chat with Joe and Alex. I'm gonna have to get you on at some stage as well. So yeah, brand yeah. new. Well, everybody, go check it out. Reed Goosens. What's the name of it again? It's called Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Well, and after Any, anyway, we podcast. 
to the listeners, if you hear background noises, I'm on babysitting duty at the same time. So, Well, we hope your wife gets better. She had a pinched nerve last night and had to go to the chiropractor. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. It really debilitates you. It's like you can't even move. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll get this straightened out, well, literally. Reed, <laughs> Reed, we're glad you're on the show. And you can now put on your website, as heard on Real Estate Investing Master, you can use our logo, and it'll really exactly. help. It'll make you famous. I will... Uh... I will. I'll pull that off you guys uh, after the show. But I just wanted to say to all your listeners out there, it's um, it's great to be a little fly on the wall in you know, listening to you two both talk about the different problems you're having with your VAs. Uh, I don't have that problem as I don't have a VA yet, but I, but I guess I'll I'll soon find out. And if I go to the Philippines, I'll have to expect that that same excuse by the sounds of it. But very interesting stuff. Yeah, you'll need to write up a new employment agreement that says you know you can't have any family members die. <laughs> or only only one are allowed to die a year. Yeah, <laughs> one are allowed, to, and that's not funny because you know, maybe it's true, and that's really, no. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But I, I mean, just, you know, you give people the benefit of the doubt, but sometimes I know it's you know if you've been in the landlord business, you learn that it's terrible. It makes you a really cold person because excuses just you know you you almost feel like an idiot sometimes if you take some of the excuses all the time. And we right. can't live by excuses. We live by results. So. Right. Um, exactly. So, but the Philippines is real close to Australia. And I have some friends who live in Australia who uh, have businesses and have a ton of VAs. And the cool thing about what they get to do is they will fly to the Philippines regularly to meet with their team. They have a whole right. team in the Philippines. It's only a few hour flight, right? Yep. Yep, it is. And um, I guess it goes back to the Philippines is also obviously a lot closer to Australia in terms of uh, – I'm going to sound stupid here. I think it's latitude. So, you know, the time zone is roughly the same or within a few hours. So that, that live ca- calling and answering phones I'm sure is a lot easier yeah, and yeah. more prevalent when you're operating a business in Australia compared to when you're operating a business in the United States because of the, just because of the sheer time difference. So maybe back to your point before about having people – uh, answer the answer the phone live uh, yeah. when you send out ten ten postcard ten thousand postcards I should say. Well, yeah, and let me just say we interviewed probably a few months ago a guy named Robert Nickel. I don't know if you remember Alex. He's from a company called uh, IVAS, and I don't know what that stands for. But I've had his VA for almost a year now, over a little over a year. International now. Virtual Assistant Services. How about that? That sounds good enough. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> and she's been great. And I've been referring a lot of friends to him. I'm not getting anything out of this. If you go to vaeasybutton.com, vaeasybutton.com, Robert Nicoles in my mastermind, Collective Genius, and it's just a really smart guy. He's an investor. All of his VAs go through 200 hours of real estate training. They're all trained in Podio. They're all pre-screened. They have really good English. And you can get part-time or full-time, or full-time VAs. They're not cheap. You pay for what well, you yeah, get. What, what is pay the for. cost on that? Well, I don't know. I can't quote you that either because I, I I think I'm getting a good deal, uh, better than most. But I'm getting ready to hire my second VA from him, and she's she's been the one I have has been really really good. What she does is she answers the phones live for me. I'm not doing as many postcards as ten thousand at a time. I might do two or three thousand at a time, but she answers the phone live as much as she can. She asks four or five simple questions, puts the leads in Podio. And sends them to my local wholesaler. Uh, I also have another VA that I found from Odesk, and, and now it's Upwork. But you know, in the past, I know a lot of people have been struggling with finding good VAs on Odesk, 
And I did. I found this one, and he's been great. I give him good bonuses. I pay him well. As far as I know, he hasn't gotten anybody pregnant except his wife. <laughs> and he, <laughs> he's been really good. You know, the other day, uh, he this was an old lead that we had, and he, I gave him a, the, a, the task of following up with all my old leads. I didn't remember even telling him how. I just said, follow up with all of our old leads, and you'll get 100 bucks for everyone that turns into a deal. So once a month, sure enough, he's been calling and texting all of our old leads. And one of them turned into deal. This guy had four properties. That's great. We sold it really quickly to one of our buyers. This was four months after the first lead came in that he, when he first contacted us. And we sold it, made a $32,000 net profit on that uh, on wholesaling those deals. That's great. Old leads turned into cash when everybody else forgot about it. <laughs> right, right, right. But here, we're going to talk about Reed. Because Reed's our special guest. You actually live now in the L.A. in in the L.A. right, Reed? In the L.A. is the, the the all of them, yeah. <laughs> all of them together. But yes, I do live in in L.A. I was just in Southern California in Oceanside in San Diego five days ago, and I tell oh, really? you, I, okay. yeah, I used to. I was born in L.A., was raised in San Diego, and I miss the beach, but that's about it. And family. <laughs> but I do, family. that's it, man. I do not miss the traffic, the congestion. Oh, it's terrible. Oh. <laughs> I don't know how you do yep. it. It's, uh, it's wearing thin, put it that way. So why? Where, I don't think there's anywhere in the world, you know, maybe in a, in a Western world that's as bad as LA. I don't know. I, didn't, I used to live in New York and I never drove in New York, so it was easy getting around. But uh, LA is it's terrible. Oh, what like part an hour of and a half just to... I was in Brooklyn for a good 18 months Uh-oh. and then Upper East Side and then over in Jersey City for, for a period of time. And so my, my girlfriend's from L.A., so she brought me back here okay. uh, a little bit kicking and screaming. I, I love New York. I think New York is, you know, just – I'm actually a New Yorker. Oh, you are? Where are you from? Long Island. Right. That's where I grew I have- up. Well, yes, a lot of lot of Long Island. I used to work for a guy who lived out in Long Island, a uh, Russian guy. He's a really nice guy, but anyway. <laughs> so, your girlfriend brought you to LA. What brought you to the United States? So, the just the pure hunger for living and working in another country. Uh, I, the Australian and American uh, governments have a very good relationship, and for people who have been to university and have. Uh, a college degree. I have a college degree in structural engineering. Um, I you, you're allowed to come to the United States and work indefinitely um, if you as long as long as you have a job offer. So there's a lot of opportunities, and uh, a lot more Australians are out here because of this this new visa, and um, it's really really awesome. And I wouldn't be here, and I wouldn't be investing and doing what I'm doing without this visa and and you know the ability to move to another country and just to get up and pack up and, and move it to halfway across the world is really exciting and yeah. um you know get, gets my I just, I just love it so i've done it a few times now uh, I, i'm 29 years old and i i moved to london right after university and then i, I backpacked through new york many many years ago and I just said to myself, I've got to live here for some, you know, at some point in my life, and it, it turned into reality about four years ago. So now uh, I'm still living in the United States and loving it. That's really cool. I didn't yeah. know it was that easy for Australians to come here. Now, if you lose your job, can you still stay here, or if you, you have uh, you have you have ten days to to leave the country? Um, Serious? But you know, you typically. Yeah, it's 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 ten days, um, but typically, like you're, there's a lot more of the other the other way. It's like, oh, I've got another job offer. Oh wait, I've got to quickly jump across the border to Canada, do my visa, come back in. You know, it's sort of that sort of thing. Rather than I haven't heard too many guys 
been fired yet. <laughs> so you know, they, they offer like 10,000 of these visas every year and we can't even – I don't even think they give, give out more than like four. So they don't even give out half of them because the hardest thing is getting – the the employer to say yes because they're like oh what's this visa visa oh uh, no yuck um so you but it's really quite straightforward and and you know once they get over that hurdle it's it's smooth sailing so to speak so so yeah. do you still do you still work a full time job here I I have a I have a um, I still consult uh, on the side for a de- large development firm in Lo- in Lo- Long Beach. Um, and uh, as I like to, my, my girlfriend, who I've been with for, for five or six years, will be uh, no longer my girlfriend anymore, but maybe my fiance. So that I will, I'll be graduating from one visa to another, <laughs> as they say. So, well, I was going to tell you, you better yeah, hurry nice. up and get you better hurry up and get married, <laughs> yeah. get some kids. Yep, 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 yep. So, and then the other Run thing is being in LA. It's while a, you do podcasts, <laughs> yeah, <Good. laughs> get some VAs from the Philippines who are uh, who uh, the the days of our lives from the Philippines. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, what got you interested in real estate, Reed? Uh, look, I. Uh, Backing up a few years back in 2007, I graduated from university in in Brisbane, Australia, and I was working with a company, an engineering company, who had a sister company in London, uh, the United Kingdom, doing a lot of the major projects on the the London 2012 Games. Now, this was 2008, and obviously, the games don't just happen; they take you know 10 years of planning and construction and yada yada yada. So, there's a lot of work going on. Um, but coupled with that was the the recession, and it was hit quite hard. Everyone was hit quite hard across the the world, particularly here in the United States. Um, but I really had the bug to, you know, I was twenty one, twenty two years old to to leave and go traveling. And and my, the company said, look, you can go to London. There'll be a job there. So I went to London. Um, I worked there for a period of time. I backpacked back through the United States. Met my girlfriend. Um, went back to Australia about two years later and sort of sitting back in the cubicle in my office just saying, you know, just after a massive two-year high of traveling around the world and working and, and doing whatever, um, to just saying this can't be what I'm doing for the rest of my life. I need – why can't someone pay me to travel <laughs> or something like that? Why can't someone pay me to do what I love to do, which is, you know, adventures and, you know, being surfing and, you know, hiking and all that good stuff. And I, I just said this – this I've got more to give. I, I knew I didn't know what it was and I, I was just really hungry to learn more and and I was looking at other, you know, successful businesses and, and, and I didn't really understand the word entrepreneur at the time and – but I just knew that I'd, I'd, fin- I'd finished engineering with a, with a good degree and a good job, but I was not um, – I wasn't happy. I wasn't fulfilling me. And so I started uh, you know, saving a bit of money and I wanted to get that money working for me. I knew, I knew I had to get it working for me, but I didn't know how. And I just started Googling investment opportunities and you know, two things came up. And that was investing in the stock market or investing in real estate. And, and, and my dad had a few successes in, in real estate in the Australian market. Um, he's not a full-time investor by any means, but he has had a few successes. And I said, that's, you know, that, that's, that's brilliant. That's exactly what I, I should be doing because coupled with my day job, I'm working on a day-to-day as part of these teams, the design teams with the architect and whatnot to be, bring these big, large commercial deals to fruition. And you know we work for developers, but I didn't know what a developer was at the state at that time. So, cut a long story short is that I picked up Rich Dad Poor Dad, and that was the the, the aha moment, and and that was really when the penny dropped. And ever since then, I've been you know consuming myself with as much uh, real estate knowledge and and getting getting my feet wet, wet as possible. And and um, 
and then I moved to the United States. So that's, that's, that's a little bit of how I got started. Um, but the United States really kicked it off for me because of it, there's a lot more lower barriers to entry here in the US than there are compared to Australia. So when I moved to uh, New York back in 2012, I had a bit of money and I still had the hunger to, to create that passive income and that cash flow. And, you know, places were cheap back then, you know, and they're still cheap now, but you can go buy a place for $50,000 and it can rent for, you know, 900 to 1000 bucks a week. And that's incredible. You know, you wouldn't be able to find that in Australia. So, I, I was able to get my feet wet a lot quicker um, here and, and amass a larger larger amount of properties than I could ever dream of in Australia. So that's where I – yeah, but anyway. I, I love how your anyway. podcast is very, very niched down into a specific topic for specific people, right? Yes. Uh, it's not just generic real estate investing like ours. <laughs> but when we did ours <laughs> – there was only like two or three other podcasts out there on real estate investing. So it was kind of niched, but now we're just in a sea of 20 or 30 different podcasts. But I love how yours is focused on investing in the U.S. for Australians. But I think people from the U.S. can also get a lot out of your podcast as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, that's that's, that's correct. You know, it's really sort of you know, I have that name, an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. I say to all my, it's I, on the podcast. I say all my international investors. I don't just sort of try and pigeonhole myself to Aussies. But the thing is, yeah, you're right. It's fundamentally whether you're an American or you're an Australian or you're Canadian or you, you know, someone from the UK looking to buy real estate here in the United States. You still got to go through. Maybe if you're an American, you wouldn't have to go through what's called an, an ITIN process, which is you know a process where you tell the U.S. government, "Hey, I'm an international investor. I want to buy real estate here," and it's just sort of a form you fill out, and it's pretty straightforward. But you need someone to do that for you. You need a good CPA, um, you know. But still, de- developing a good team on the ground, regardless if you're investing uh, two hours away or you know two thousand miles away, it's. Um, it's the same fundamentals, and and when I moved here, I learned that very quickly. And you know, starting an LLC, and you know, making sure that you have you know, your entity structuring is correct. Um, how to underwrite a deal? You know, you can underwrite a deal here in America, or you can underwrite a deal here in Australia, and they're still fundamentally the same. You're looking for net operating income. You're going to look for um, you know income versus expenses. How do you maximize your income and minimize your expenses? And they're the sort of topics I talk about. Um, so it's a whole slew of of issues that are fun, uh, can be um, you know applied to whether you're an American investor or an, an international investor. All right. Well, that's why uh, when you contacted me, that's why I was so excited about having you on the show. I, I love talking to people from other parts of the world that are investing in the United States because it can be done. I've had I've have clients th- from Lebanon that are doing deals in the in Oklahoma City. I've had clients from Singapore doing deals in Philadelphia, uh, the UK doing deals in Texas, clients in the Philippines actually doing deals in the United States doing a lot of lease options. I knew a guy personally that was doing six to seven deals a month in Chicago from India. He was actually wow. an engineer. And he was uh, uh, he was very successful actually in the U.S. He just got tired of working in the rat race. Cost of living is a lot cheaper in India. He still has family back there, and he was he went to college here in the U.S. So he actually moved back to India, hired a team of six or seven telemarketers, and every wow. day each telemarketer would call about fifty or sixty people from Craigslist 
in Chicago area and would, would do lease option flips from India in mm-hmm. Chicago. And he had a couple of realtors boots on the ground in Chicago that, but I love, I get excited when I hear stories like that. It's something that I've done, but it's been, it's kind of easy for somebody who lives in the U S who can do deals in the U S without seeing the house, you know, then when you travel, you can go do the same thing from Prague or what about somebody that's never been to the U.S. that can actually flip deals here in the U.S.? That's what's really cool because that there's a there's a big fear of the unknown, isn't there, Reed? So, what do you? Yep. First of all, let me ask you: What kind of real estate are you typically trying to do? Are you buy and hold, fix and flip, wholesaling? What what is it? Sure. Um, I cut my teeth on buying and holding cash flow, small duplexes in, in upstate New York uh, when I first moved to the United States. I have fixed and flipped in the past, uh, but my time is valuable and you know, choosing flooring <laughs> and hoping that someone pays me more money for the property after I'm finished is uh, something I, you know, I project manage on a day-to-day basis. So, my time is money and I like to scale it. I, I now focus on large um, scale multifamily apartments, institutional deals. We closed on a 250 unit deal last year and my partners and I are looking to close on another 150 units in the next month and a half. So I syndicate. I raise capital for these deals. Reed and, does uh, not play around. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's my focus, and um, you know, I, I I found the power of you know the, the cap rate theory, forcing appreciation um, in, in multifamilies, and that's that's what I love. I love that cas- the passive income and the cash flow. And if I can force the appreciation at the same time, then even better. I've got to hit two birds with one stone, as they say in Australia. So, uh, but excuse me if I say too many Australian lingos or sayings. People are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> well, we we see that in the U.S. as well. We like we? that. Hey, good. Good, 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 good. But, you know, Americans, not- you've heard this, I'm sure, a thousand times. We, we really enjoy hearing Australian accents. And what, what is it like hearing an American accent if, if an American came to Australia? Is it kind of obnoxious? No, it's uh, it's not. It's not really. It's, it's like a novelty as well. You know, the same sort of thing. But you know, with Australia is very similar to the United States and very multicultured. You know, when I was living in New York, I and, and, and here sometimes in LA, I forget that I'm sometimes living in the United States. I'm surrounded by so many people who are not necessarily from the United States or have yeah. a different background, and it is a really truly um, multicultural multicultural society. And Australia is very similar. Um, you so, know, yes. you know, we're multi cultural when they're at the republican debate uh, only two of the guys at the five person republican debate are white <laughs> yes exactly one exactly. is african-american and two are latinos from yep. cuba yep. so that I mean that's anyway i'm not talking politics i'm just saying <laughs> what does it mean yep. by uh enforce equity what do you what do you mean by that so i you know Look at the what. Look at the cap rate theory. So cap rate is equal to net operating income divided by the purchase price or the value of the property. And this is just in pure fundamentals. And um, if you go in and increase that NOI, you know you increase it by uh, one dollar, and it's in a ten cap market, then you're increasing the value of the property by ten bucks. Uh, and you know, and if it's you know seven percent, it's what sixteen, whatever the, the math is. But what I'm trying to say is that if you you can the banks like to value. Uh, multifamily property based on the cash flow that is produced from that property. Uh, so, if you can increase that cash flow or, or the net operating income, you can increase the value of the property. So, you're, you're, you're increasing. 
Significantly, correct. Yes. And it, yeah, yeah, so if you're doing it, I, w- I, I sort of stumbled into it on doing a couple of duplexes in upstate New York and I was like, oh, this is great. You know, the place needs a bit of work. Okay, let's put some paint into it. Let's put some new tiles. Okay, I increased the rent for 75 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month. That's great. You know, I've just, I've just you know, it was only on a small scale and I, and I realized quickly what I was doing and I was like, I need to apply this to, you know, 200 units or 50 units or whatever it might be um, in commercial real estate and, and that's why I love commercial real estate uh, for that for that fact, um, but that's that's me, and I know you guys do do some other stuff, which I'm very interested to learn more about in terms of lease options. Because I think when Joe and I had you on my show throughout the week, I was saying that in Australia they'd done away with some lease options, you know, over the last few years. But I remember back in 2009 when I first started learning about real estate, lease options was was a big thing back then. So, yes. Now, so you're dealing mainly with larger properties, uh, multifamilies. And commercial properties, is that right as well? Like uh, commercial? Uh, so commercial in the sense of residential. It's over four okay. units. Okay. It's, it, no, I haven't delved into the you know storage or you know trailer strip, parks or something. Strip, strip, strip malls. malls. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to. <laughs> now, what kind of – you said you syndicate. Mm-hmm. Explain what that means. So syndication is really pooling investors' money together – I put a bit of money in, everyone else puts a bit of money in and then we go and buy a, a deal that maybe we couldn't have purchased uh, as individuals. So we're, we're sort of increasing our buying potential as a group and by doing that, you know, I look for people who want to rent their money to me. You know, they, they, they might be too busy in their day jobs or on their lives and they want to just, they know the, the benefits of real estate and they want to get a good ROI, return on their investment. So I will look for those types of investors to come on board with me and say, and rent me their money, and they will own an equity portion of the deal based on how much money they're putting in, and they'll get a preferred return, which means um, the first X amount of percent of rental income or cash flow goes straight to them. And then, you know, I take a little bit, and we 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 make money together. So that's sort of in a nutshell what uh, syndication is. And the new sexy word for syndication is crowdfunding. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people out there have heard of crowdfunding. It's this, it's the same sort of thing minus maybe your online platforms that everyone talks about and stuff like that but you know, now it's can- <laughs> it's easier today to do that than it used to be a couple three years ago but there's still a lot of regulation and licensing and and stuff like Correct. that you have to worry about right Correct. Can you talk about like that SEC a little bit? And stuff like that, right? Yeah. That's correct. That's correct. So um, there's been recent changes and one I had a – I just did a three-part series on syndication in on my show uh, and I had a lawyer on talking about the changes in the Jobs Act and Title Three and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, in its essence is that you know, the Security Exchange Commission is, is around to protect the public from – when you're, you know, from fraudulent activity, when you're raising money for a business, it doesn't have to be real estate; it's business in general, business securities or, or securities. So they they've have developed a set of rules, um, and, and if you want to raise money from the public, you can do that, but it's very very expensive, uh, and that means that you know smaller businesses can't go and just do a public offering. So they have a regulation D, which is more of a private placement offering and there's a whole bunch of and I'm not going to get into it but you know and I'm not a lawyer so there's a whole bunch of rules and regulations that you need to meet to make sure that you're not soliciting to the public um, but one of the major changes with the with the new latest jobs act is you know the solicitation laws have have changed um, as long as you're you know, getting accredited investors. So there are lawyers out there on the, jumping around in the streets for joy and there's a lot of crowdfunding platforms hitting the market because of you know 
you know, like like as you guys are doing with, you know, you're, you're, the world is very, very small these days with all the internet, you know, gadgets and stuff. I can connect with an Uber driver and all of it. I've never met him before. Um, and I, he can he can drive me somewhere. You know, the, the 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 world is changing where you can connect with investors a lot easier, and you might not necessarily have had known had a pre existing relationship with them like they had ha- like it had to happen in the past. Um, but again, not a lawyer, so you know, please go out and get get good advice. But that's what the changes are slowly starting to happen, and you know, the space in crowdfunding in general and raising capital is blowing up right now. That you know, just in the last five years, there's been a ton of online platforms come come to life and. You know, so yeah, I'm sure everyone's not uh, unaware of crowdfunding in general. So, Reed, do you? Do you obviously, you hired an attorney. It sounds like to help you yep. kind of navigate all those issues, right? That's correct. Yeah, there's no by no means. It goes back to setting up teams and making sure you have the correct team around you to be successful. Uh, and that's one of the major lessons I learned was when I first moved to the United States. And one of the major thing, themes in my podcast is to build a credible team and to make sure that you're successful. And one of those team members is a good lawyer. And depend, depending on where you are in the United States, you might have a, a state-based lawyer. So if you're buying a property in Texas, you might want to have a Texas-based lawyer. And you know that's making sure you have that, that good team uh, around you. So, now, did you yeah. have to file any kind of securities notification? Yes, we, or we did. We did. We, we had a, we had a we had a what's called a private placement memorandum and a um, a file a file D, I think it is in that local because we purchased the property in in Texas, um, and that you know pr- the PPM as it's known because it's a private placement memorandum. We had to show that this is prior to all these new changes. We had to show that we had pre existing relationships with all our investors. Um, we had to, I mean, we only could raise um, you know we had all accredited investors. And that was through, you know, making sure we went accreditation through their um, CPAs and their lawyers and all that sort of stuff. So anyone who was involved with us went through all the rigmarole of understanding what they can and can't do, what the, what the risks are involved with any sort of real estate um, transaction. And, and the PPM is one of those very, very important pieces of um, paperwork that uh, if any investors out there considering getting involved in a syndication, make sure you have or you are looking at a PPM because if they don't have a PPM, they're doing the wrong thing. <laughs> or, or it's a massive red flag. So please, please be careful. Well, a couple of questions for just our audience. Can you clarify what an accredited investor is? Sure thing. An accredited investor is someone who has a an annual income of two hundred thousand dollars or more, or net worth exclude. Now, they don't quote me. I think it's excluding their primary residence of a million bucks. So if they're worth a million bucks or more, or they got an annual income of two hundred thousand dollars or more, they are accredited. So yeah, that is you do have to take the house out of it. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought so. I couldn't remember. Yeah, it was like yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> it is important to talk to an attorney about this because states have their own laws as well, right? So you can still raise exactly. money with people that you know that are not accredited investors. Isn't that right? You can. You can. But they, you need to have shown a pre-existing relationship with them and you need to, you know, that's why the PPM is so very, very important with, with raising because it's, it, it's literally like a, you know, depending on who you go to, it can be a very, very thick book, and it just covers every single risk. And and at the end of the day, it's you know, when you raise money from people, you need to give them all the facts, and those facts are covered in the PPM, and they need to go out and make a decision whether they want to invest in you, um, with you in this particular deal. So yeah, disclose, disclose, disclose. yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, for sure. Those of you that are interested too, uh, Susan, we got to get her on the show, Alex, Susan. 
I can I cannot pronounce her last Lassiter name. Lassiter Lyons. She wrote, thank you. She wrote a book <laughs> called "Getting Getting the Money." Have you heard of that yet? No, I haven't. I haven't. It's a really good book. Okay. Everybody should get that getting, book. You can get it on Amazon Kindle. Getting the money. Getting the money. Uh, she does sell her system kind of a little bit throughout the course and at the end, but there's still enough really good information in there that I, th- I was really impressed with the book. Fantastic. It took me a couple hours to read mm-hmm. it. So anybody kind of interested in getting a little bit more t- about this, g- get her book, re- Getting the Money. Uh, this private placement memorandum, mm-hmm. getting an attorney to help you kind of with that, yep. what's the ballpark figure that someone should expect to – pay for that kind good, of help good question uh, um i think we pay ended up paying around you know this is on a large you know remember we're we're on a large we're 250 units so it's a larger deal um i think it was around 15 or twenty thousand uh, dollars. i know on smaller stuff you can i have heard people can do a ppm some if it's pretty straightforward and, and not a large offering uh for around five or six it's just a line item that you need to do don't you know don't be running for the hills because because of that. It shouldn't be feared. It's like replacing a roof or something. It just you have to do it. Just do it. You know, don't don't not do it. So, um, do you do you have to do it for every deal that you do, or just whenever you're forming the? If you it depends. The, if you're doing a if you're doing a fund, then you do it a PPM uh, in, in on the fund. If you're doing a deal on a syndicating on a deal by deal basis, it would would be. Uh, I would advise to do it on a deal by deal basis. Uh, because each deal is different, right? And each each time you raise capital might be from a different set of group of people. So, yeah, as I said, talk to your attorney. Don't take my advice from I'm not an attorney. Please go and talk to an attorney. <laughs> right, right. But let me ask another question, Alex and Reed, and you guys tell me what you think. Is it different to sell a note or raise money or – is it different to like raise, sell money, raise money and sell a note or say, hey, I'm looking for someone to partner with me on this deal and become an investing partner instead of a lender? Is there is there a difference in the eyes of the SEC if you were to do that on a deal by deal basis? <laughs> instead of borrowing the money, you give, you bring somebody on who's a lend, uh, a partner on the deal. That's a JV thing. Yeah. yeah. I don't I'm no securities attorney by any stretch of the imagination but um that sounds more like a partnership than a investing uh relationship as far as like me paying you interest or offering you something in which you're going to get a return exactly you yeah securities meaning that you're raising money and in return they get an equity stake or they get something in return for their investment into the deal if it's a partnership it's like Hey, we've got this great idea. Let's partner together. It's it's kind of different, I think, in my in my eyes, anyway. I think so. I think so too. I will say this though: the, the SEC, any kind of government agency, if you're if you're doing something stupid, if you're a what would I say nicely and politely, if you're if you're a jack off, then you well, you're going to get polite. in trouble. That was good. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Okay, thanks. I, I, You're I mean, gonna... it was better than Wolf of Wall Street good, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you do something like the Wolf of Wall Street, you know, you're going to get in trouble no matter – he was obviously different, but you you could follow all of the law. And I know a guy who uh, – it's a long story and I won't get into too many details, but, um, you know, he, he actually paid – he got the attorney. Mm-hmm. 
And he paid tens of thousands of dollars to get everything set up. He even had an SEC, somebody who works for the SEC, on the phone verbally tell him what you're doing is fine. You're, you're cro- crossing all your T's, dotting all your I's. You're good. Still got in trouble. When the market crashed, everything kind of fell apart, you know. And it didn't matter at all what his attorney told him. It didn't matter what the SEC guy told him on the phone. If you do something stupid and, and they'll, they'll get their, their, a target on you, They'll go after you. Now, I'm not saying that to scare anybody, except maybe hopefully to scare you if you're if you're do trying to the do right something stupid. Thing. <laughs> yes. Always yes. pay your investors first. Yes. Always pay your investors first. Yes. And disclose, 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 as Alex said before. And make sure yeah. you're getting good counsel. That's another thing. You know, don't just go to anyone. Make sure you're you're researching the attorney and because you know, at the end of the day, I, what I love about syndication is, you know, like if you look at any successful business around the world, any bank, any, they didn't just have the founders, none of the founders of all those businesses had a pile of cash sitting on the side and said, hey, this will use our cash to launch this business. They used other people's money to help grow their business and that's just business 101 and that's how, you know, these large businesses come to to fruition is using other people's money and that's the power and it's leveraging people, leveraging you to find good deals. You're leveraging them to find, to purchase these deals and and, and buy these deals. So it's just a leverage tool and it's it's a mechanism for uh, a good business and, and to scale your business as you start to grow, whether it be real estate or marketing or whatever it might be, Facebook, I don't know. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of money sitting out there on the sidelines too, especially now the stock market's not doing well. People are taking their money out. Real estate can provide a really good, safe, consistent return yep. if in, if it's done properly. Exactly. And a lot of ton, a lot of tax benefits. Mm-hmm. So, Reed, what talk to talk to to the international investors that's listening to our podcast because believe it or not, uh, we have over 170 different countries that have listened to our show. People in 170 different countries that have listened to our show since we started, and we have a lot of international people listening to this. Have some interest in real estate in the United States. What? Where would you tell them to start? Give them some advice. Yep. Um, like anything, you need to start. If, if you're just looking and you're, you're already doing the, the right thing by listening to Joe and Alex's podcast, this is a great you know learning tool. So keep listening and, and even rewind all the way back and, and, and to, to a subject you might be um, thinking about getting started. And that, that could just be as simple as what are you going to choose to do in terms of real estate? Is it, is it wholesaling? Is it uh, flipping lease options? Is it buy and hold? Is it cash flow? Is it just flipping a property in general? I don't know how you do that from afar, but you could. Maybe there's a, there's a way you could do that. But the, my, my biggest advice would be to uh, continue to grow and you, to continue to grow your financial IQ and, and don't be ignorant of the different options out there in terms of creating money through US real estate here in the United States. That's my biggest piece of advice. What, what would you tell somebody who's intimidated maybe a little bit by the unknown and what you know, they, they might not have ever been here before or they, they wonder, can I really buy real estate in the U.S. while living in another country? Sure, and, and the unknown comes from um, a little bit of, of, of fear and, and a little bit of ignorance. And, and you know, I didn't know about real estate and the power that it had you know, six years ago when I started you know, learning about it, but I learned about it. And then over time, Mick, you know, uh, I didn't know about engineering when I started engineering school, but then over time I learned about it and I became an engineer. You know, it's about educating yourself. It's about being knowledgeable of certain aspects to, uh, you know, quell, I don't know if that's the right word, to 
put your mind at ease in terms of investing in a foreign country. It can be done as, you know, Joe and Alex are successfully doing it with international people and their, 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 their mentees, so to speak. Um, I'm connecting with people across the world. It's a smaller place these days, um, but it, it can be done and it's very, very, it's very, very easy if you have the right team and you have the right education and you're putting in place steps that people are teaching you what to do. Are a lot of Australians buying? Are look? Are they looking to buy multifamilies here in the U.S. or single-family homes? So, interesting. Um, back there was a big surge in Australian pro, uh, people back in uh, 2011, 2012, when the Australian dollar was on parity with the U.S. dollar. It has fallen off a little bit. Um, but one of the biggest things is the you know the barriers to entry in the, in Australia is 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 a lot larger, and the reason is because our population is you know one tenth or not even one tenth of the size of the United States. And our land mass, excluding Alaska, is the, is the same size as, as as America. So, but we're we only can inhabit like fifteen percent of our land. Um, so we're sort of like landlocked, and and you'd never ever find, as I said before, a property that was fifty thousand bucks. And because that's a, because population, that, that's a, it's a, that's a direct. You know, people live need somewhere to live, and so when you have four hundred million people, you're going to find some space, some places where there's going to be a lot cheaper properties when you only have 25 million people there's not as many opportunities to find that sort of stuff cash flow isn't as isn't as prevalent because of the entry point um cost of housing versus what rental income you're getting so the mortgage repayments in australia um are are a lot higher versus the the rental income so cash flow might be a little bit harder to achieve and and as i said it goes back to that the barriers of entry and a lot of people you know can't just cannot just go and get uh, a $400,000 loan to buy their first property. Um, and, and it goes also back to I wouldn't have been able to – in Australia, if, if there was a 250-unit property in Australia, I wouldn't have the skills or ability or the team um, to buy something like that or help buy something like that. Here in the, in America, I, w- I was able to and there's different um, opportunities that were had presented itself that wouldn't have been presented in Australia. What if somebody here in the United States is a wholesaler, let's say, and they find discounted properties, mm-hmm. and they they find an Australian who is interested in investing in the U.S. and buying some of their properties? What would you tell the local wholesaler in the U.S. how to help the Australian or somebody internationally uh, on how to buy that house? So it it goes back to understanding the processes and and part of what uh, I do on my show is, is walk people through the processes of international when you before you buy like there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen before you buy a pre piece of land you can't just be oh I'm I'm an Australian and I want to buy this distressed property from one of your guys who are flipping it to them. They need to make sure that they've you know done all the right things. They've set up an LLC. How are you going to get your money into the, to, to America? There's all those different sort of things and there's a lot of processes that you've got to go through and it's not difficult. It's just that you need to know them. So the person on the ground, well, if, they're, if, they're, if they're savvy and they want to lend to international – sell to international investors, then – um, just, just be no, just be cognitive of the fact that there's other things that need to happen as well. I've been starting to buy and sell land yep. in the last month, and we've already been getting properties under contract for super cheap. Wow. Literally a hundred dollars an acre. Oh, we're, we're we're finding these these empty vacant lots in the middle of nowhere, Colorado and Arizona, that they're selling right now for let's say ten to twenty thousand dollars, five acre lots. We're buying them for a couple hundred, well, usually hundred bucks, so about five hundred dollars total. 
so all we're doing is we're sending out blind offers, mm-hmm. getting them accepted for – we're buying lots, two-acre lots for 200 500 five-acre lots for $500. And we're turning around and selling these. I'm in the middle of all this right now as we speak. So I turn around and sell these things either at a discount to another investor who either keeps it for long-term investment or sells it with owner financing on their own, or I sell it on owner financing myself. And it's a pretty fascinating business model to me. I, I like the I like the idea of of owning an asset that produces cash flow that I don't have to worry about tenants. Right. And and land is actually very easy to do. There's very little competition for it. So let's say I wanted to start selling land to other investors, mm-hmm. and I wanted to target investors from countries like Australia. Yep. How would I How would I go about doing that? Uh, I- I think you need to offer them if you're selling land uh, it needs to the re, the whole reason that someone from Australia would invest in the United States would be for cash flow and if yeah. if the property can produce whether it be land or or something else if if you can flip the the note to them and it's cash flowing because you have you packaged it all up ah. uh, that would be a, a way uh, I couldn't see someone uh, maybe they want it maybe they just want land I don't know <laughs> but typically most of the guys I, I deal with uh, like I, I'm investing in the United States because I want cash flow I, I want to get my you know a, a 15% uh, sorry a, a 11% cap or a 12% cap or, or, or I need I need to get my money working for me so that's that's what I would recommend so if you can package it up in a way that um, I've listened to some of your shows before that you know the way that you do what you do Joe uh, and Alex then that would be a way to if it, if it was a you know a, a whole um, package in terms of well here's here's the I purchased this this piece of land. I'm going to get someone to rent it from me uh, on a lease option or whatever it might be, and then you sell that lease option to someone else. It's packaged an international investor. It's already producing income. Then great. That's that's what I would suggest. That's that's what I love about lease options, Alex. You need to pay attention because <laughs> <laughs> lease options, baby, is where it's at. They're coming back. What? But uh, here, listen. This is how it works. Now, Reed, you tell me if, if I put together this deal, yep. and I can do this all day long, tell me if an Australian investor would be interested mm-hmm. in this, okay? A house is worth $150,000. Yep. Okay? The mortgage payment on it, there's an existing mortgage on it. The guy owes, let's say the guy owes one hundred and forty. No, let's say he owes $130,000. Um, and the mortgage payment is, I'm writing this down so I don't screw it up myself. <laughs> The mortgage payment is uh, $1,000 a month, okay? But it'll rent for $1,300 a month, okay? Mm-hmm. So there is $300 a month in gross cash flow. But that $1,000 a month includes taxes and insurance and everything, okay? Yep. So that's $300 a month. I call it gross cash flow. I don't know if that's the right term, but call it gross cash flow. It's worth 150, the guy owes 130. I tie it up on a lease option, a sandwich lease option. Okay? Where I'm going to stay in the middle for let's say 135,000. Now the seller, he can't sell it for what he wants and have to um if he sells it with a realtor, he's going to have to pay commissions, he's going to have to probably discount it, he's going to have closing costs. He he's also going to have to pay carrying costs for the four six months that it takes to sell it, and he just got a job transfer. He doesn't want to be a landlord. He's kind of out of options. But I call him and I say, "Hey, 
I could lease your house for a few years and then buy it. Would that work for you? He says, yeah, that's great. And so I'm going to, I present the seller my offer to lease purchase the property. I'm going to stay in the middle. I'm going to take care of the vacancies and repairs, all the vacancies, all the repairs under 500 bucks, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So I get this property under contract for $135,000 for in five years. Five years, I'll buy the property for 135. It's worth 150. So there's 15 grand in built-in equity, mm-hmm. and there's 300 a month in cash flow. Okay, I put a tenant buyer in it. I'm going to collect, you know, let's say a, let's say a four thousand dollar option consideration deposit from the tenant buyer. Okay, let's just say you take out 50 percent of that cash flow for expenses. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you take out 50% of 300 and that leaves you with $150 a month in net cash flow. Now, one of the benefits of a lease option is you get a tenant buyer in that property who is going to require less management, less headaches than a typical tenant, like 99% of the time, because that tenant wants to buy the house. And by the way, since the tenant's going to be buying the house in a couple years, hopefully, maybe, I'm going to set the option price at $157,000, right? So in two years, I'm going to say the option price is $157,000. They owe $135,000. So that is actually $22,000 in built-in equity. Now, this is called the double-dip strategy, all right? The double-dip lease option strategy. I just made $4,000 from the tenant buyer. I'm going to take this contract and I'm going to sell it to an Aussie. Yep. For $5,000. Yep. All right. Now, you're looking at $22,000 in equity, $150 a month net cash flow, and that's figuring saving half of the uh, the cash flow for vacancies and stuff like that and maintenance and repairs. So what's 150 times 12? 150 times 12. That's $1,800 a year in net cash flow. If I sell that note for an, to an investor for $5,000, what's the cash-on-cash cash return on that money? That's 36% cash-on-cash on, cash on that deal that already has a tenant in it. Yep. And so could, could I sell that deal? Could I sell that package for $5,000? You surely could. To, could I sell it for $10,000? Yeah, you could. You, that ROI is very, very incredible. I, I love that. And for ten thousand bucks, so it's, it's incredible. Ten thousand bucks—that's an eighteen percent cash on cash return. As far as cash flow is concerned, rental-wise, just because cash the purchase price is not guaranteed at all that this person is going to perform. Sure, but there mm-hmm. is there is at least fifteen thousand dollars kind of in built-in equity. All right. Well, let me right, so let me run this scenario by you, okay? And this is a deal that I'm actually doing right now as we speak. Uh, I was supposed to close on it today, but we had a homeowners association uh, issue. All right. So um, I've negotiated, or I had my guy actually go up negotiate with the seller on a tight deal. Um, the uh, what's bound, what's owed on the note is one ninety one. Uh, he's got ten thousand seven hundred dollars in reinstatement fees. And he wants twelve thousand dollars to walk, and the property is worth in fixed up shape three hundred thousand. Whoa! Uh, I'm going to take the property subject to catch his payments up, give him twelve thousand dollars, so I'll be in it at like two fourteen or something like that. 
I could take this property, put it on the MLS, and probably sell it for two sixty nine as is, and you know, and probably probably do okay. Um, however, the payments on this thing is only like twelve or thirteen hundred bucks a month, and it will rent for eighteen nineteen hundred dollars a month, maybe even more. So. Going back to our roots and our old days of subject to and putting a buyer, a tenant buyer in there and getting in between, or there is no in between because I'll own the property subject to, um, I could do something with a down payment of maybe like 10,000 bucks if somebody's willing to do that, rent it or, or um, offer it for sale um, for maybe uh, $295 and um, um, and then payments of like, I don't know, $21, $2,200 a month and keep the thing and, uh, and sell it that way. Um, or I could just list it on the MLS and, and make 20 something thousand dollars and, and walk away. What, what would you do in that scenario? You know, because selling with owner financing and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. I wrote down your numbers as you were, you were, you went through a lot of numbers. Yes. So my opinion I would probably, since there's so much equity in that, I would, I'd rather get a quick nickel than a slow. So down you'd rather hold, just put it on MLS and get rid of it. Although yeah. my twenty thousand dollars, twenty four thousand dollars invested would bring eight hundred dollars a month in cash flow if mm-hmm. I kept it. And you now, how do you figure that cash on cash return? Well, you just take your your net cash flow divided by your cash that you invested. So twenty thousand right? into it. Well, you got uh, your your cash flow for the first year is going to be what seven hundred a month. Well, say say eight hundred dollars. Well, because the payments are twelve twelve thirteen hundred dollars, and it'll rent for like I said eighteen nineteen hundred, maybe even two thousand dollars a month. Okay, so there's seven hundred a month cash flow. Okay, yeah. Times twelve. Let's cut that by half for miscellaneous yeah. vacancies and expenses, right? Yeah. So that's forty two hundred a month in net cash. Not flow. a month, a year. A year, a year. year. That'd be nice. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And you're and you're twenty four thousand of your own cash into right. So that's seventeen and a half percent. That's pretty good. That's a good CD. It's a really good cash on cash return. So if you if you sell the if you package the deal together, because you're you're putting a lot of cash. My example, I wasn't putting no. You're not putting any cash out on that one. No. Right, right. And, and that that looks really good. With your example, you might have a harder time selling that note, selling that deal package well, to another investor. I got to recapture my my twenty four thousand. Yes, but you could do a handyman special lease option on it and get the tenant buyer to fix it up. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. I could do a, a tenant uh, a lease option and then hope they're going to cash me out one day. The other thing is too, when you're up in the two eighty five three hundred thousand dollar range. Your realtor fees and closing costs is terrible. I mean, at three hundred thousand, you're you're almost you're losing thirty thousand dollars right out the window. Yeah, I have a friend, real quick, who's selling a house for nine hundred and fifty grand in Woo. Florida. He's going to have to pay a realtor sixty thousand dollars in. Commission. Yeah, you- <laughs> yeah, and that doesn't and that doesn't even include closing costs, does it? <laughs> oh my gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but but you know, here's the thing, Reed. And I hope we're not 
you know, talking too much and not letting you not talk not at all. Because this is a fascinating topic to me. You can package deals with in, with creative real estate in so many different ways that this is a win-win-win, I think, for everybody involved. Like this deal I was talking about, if anybody wants to – you should go back and rewind and write down those numbers that Alex and I just gave on those two example deals and let us know what you think. What would you do with those kinds of deals? Leave some comments on the uh, show notes what you would do. But on my deal, I'm looking at it thinking, this is a pretty smoking deal. I could stay in the middle, sure. But – like I said, my philosophy has always kind of been I'd rather make a quick nickel than a slow dime. And I'd rather make nine, ten grand on a quick flip like this, put the deal together, make nine to ten thousand um, dollars, you know, move on to the next one. <clears throat> but this is a good invest this is a good deal for the seller. Number one, uh, I'm giving them a little bit more than than what they owe, and plus after five years they're gonna be paying down some principal, so they're gonna get some equity out of it. I'm taking care of the property so they don't have to worry about maintenance and repairs. They can go move to their job out of state. They don't have to worry about the typical landlord headaches, okay, because I'm going to be staying in the middle of this deal. There's good cash flow. So even if the tenant buyer that I put into the house doesn't buy the home, all right, the new owner, the guy who took control of this property for only five to $10,000, just does it again. They're going to be getting their money back with uh, – with 150, you know, looking at the cash flow, they're, they're going to be getting their money back pretty quickly. They can just get another tenant buyer into the house, collect a new option deposit. And worse comes to worse, in at five years, when the option expires, they can go ahead and buy it if they want, or they can sell it with if they want and get some money out of it. So there's good cash flow. There's a little bit of equity. You don't need a ton of it. And so the, 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 the end buyer wins because they're getting good cash flow. They're controlling a $150,000 property with only five to $10,000. That's huge leverage. And Joe, I've got a question for you. With, what happens if, say, the, you have issues with the tenant or something like that? Um, well, because you've got a tenant buyer, because, so that's why they're more incentivized to stay, right? And you're going to then yeah, – Yeah, so got it. for me personally, if I was doing this deal for an out-of-the-country out of investor mm-hmm. – I would still make myself available to help if that happened. Got it. Yep. Okay. Now, I, I would not actually even recommend getting a property manager. You could get a property manager, but that's going to take up 10% of your rent. And a property manager can help in a lease option deal. But in my experience with lease options, if it's a nice house and you do a good job pre-screening them, the management headaches dramatically reduce on a lease option. There may not They may not buy the house. I'm doing everything I can to help them buy the house. But during that time they're renting it, they're taking way better care of it than a regular tenant yep. would because they've, they've put more money down into it up front, and they are responsible for the maintenance and repairs. They want to buy the house. And a lot of times the tenant buyers that I've had in my own experience, they'll actually fix up the house and make it nicer. I don't get phone calls to replace faucets or broken toilets. They just fix it and do it themselves. So I find the quality of a tenant buyer is, is a lot better. 90% of the time. Now, if when it's not, if this was my deal, I would make sure my investor who I sold this deal to knew that they could call me if it happens, yep. if something happens. Yeah. Uh, and I would help them personally uh, fix it. And really, it's it's not that complicated. You just advertise it again for lease option and you get a new tenant in there. I would help with the eviction process. I mean, I would I would give them the attorney that I use and I would uh, I would help them find the contractors to clean it up if it needed that. And I think that's the most important thing is having that 
the boots on the ground team that you can trust, you, Joe uh, and Alex, that you are those guys with the lease option space. So yeah, it, it, having having that team on the ground you can trust, you can turn to if something goes awry, and you know you guys are there to fix it up. Because at the end of the day, this is your business, and this is you know you want you want repeat business. And if you can sell something for ten thousand dollars and get a ROI of seventeen uh, percent, that's incredible. So yeah, I know there'll be a lot of guys out there who want that. I love that strategy. In fact, my friend, we've talked about him on my other podcast, um, Tom Wade. He does a lot of these kind of double-dip lease options in the United Kingdom. There's a there's a big trend going on right now in the United Kingdom called the rent-to-rent strategy. Mm-hmm. Rent-to-own? Have you heard rent of that? Rent? Rent-to-own. Well, yeah, rent-to-rent, mm. it's called. You know, those silly Englanders. <laughs> <laughs> they got to come up with their own... <laughs> No, but it's it's rent to rent where you basically will rent a house from a seller, from a homeowner, as like a master yep. lease. We might call it here in the US. And then you sublease out each room for, you know, a, a a cheap. So let's say a house you rent it if it was a single family home, you pay the seller uh $1500, right? But you can rent and there's six bedrooms. You can rent each room for $500. A room because it's in London, mm-hmm. and people there are crazy and they pay a lot of money to live in London. So you can then, if you have six bedrooms, you can collect three thousand a month in rent. You're paying the homeowner fifteen hundred. You can rent the whole thing out for three thousand and make a lot more yep. money. And there's a lot more master and, leasing in in commercial uh, residential yeah. as well, multifamily. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So. My point in bringing all that up is, guys who are listening, is to start thinking outside the box and start thinking about how could I create a creative deal so I can structure it. Maybe I don't have to fix it and flip it on the MLS. Maybe I could stay in the middle for a little while. Maybe I could get some, if there's good cash flow, maybe I could put a tenant in there or a tenant buyer on a lease option, make some money up front with getting that tenant buyer in there, and then sell that package to another investor, as long as you're going to be there involved to help if something goes wrong. I think that's really important. You can't just you know, expect not to ever be involved. You've got to be there to help if something does happen. Um, I think it's a great, great strategy. and I get excited about people who, who are thinking like that, who can create those kinds of deals. And I just want to add to that, Joe, is uh, it sounds like an incredible uh, strategy and it's it's not being ignorant of, of that strategy not and, and as you said thinking outside the box and not just thinking oh, I've got to flip it and I've got to put it on the MLS and I've got to sell it there's so many other ways to make money and being creative as the yeah, economy changes who would want to do that <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think the biggest thing is as the co- economy changes being uh, malleable enough in your real estate business to uh, identify other opportunities rather than what you know, whether it be fix and flipping or like myself, just buy and holding and cash flow. There might be other ways to create uh, long-term wealth and income because of being just strategizing better and, and making sure you know that and being knowledgeable on those type of strategies. Very, very important. So it goes back to what I was saying before, you know, be knowledgeable. Don't be ignorant. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, creative real estate has it's drawbacks. You know, like Alex and I can attest, we've done some pretty stupid deals. <laughs> we, we've made some pretty it stupid mistakes. It was the wrong time in the market. Yeah, and, but, it, you know, we could blame the market, but, I, you know, I take responsibility as well because we, on the, the mistakes, the bad deals that I did when I was buying deals creatively, uh, I didn't follow the fundamentals. And that's why I think, Reed, your show is so important because you talk a lot about 
the fundamentals of understanding return on investment and cap rates and cash flow and understanding real true net cash flow, not after expenses. Yep. Not because a spreadsheet can tell you whatever you want it to tell exactly. you. Exactly. You've got to know your numbers. You've got to understand. You got to take account for things like vacancies and maintenance and repairs and future improvements and property management. All that stuff is really, really important. And after you consider that, if you're still cash flowing and you can still make 15% on your money, that's really, really good. <laughs> exactly. Who else can, where else can you make 15% conservatively on your money? No way. I don't know. And the other, one other thing is that you, I always like to tell – I'm a numbers guy because I know, Joe, you are an engineer as well or a former engineer. Um, recovering engineer. Yeah, exactly. Always assume your model's wrong. If you've got a, a, an analysis you know, model that you built, always assume it's wrong and always question it because if you rely too heavily on your models and your, your financial projections, then you can also get into a bit of trouble that way as well. And as you just said, a spreadsheet can tell you anything if you make it tell you anything. So. Mm-hmm. And I, because I, 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 I speak from experience. I, I love spreadsheets. I do a lot of them myself. And man, I, I look at this and I think the numbers are fantastic. And I get kind of blinded to reality. That's when it helps to have a coach or a mentor that can kind of pull you aside and say, well, did you think about this? Um, this could happen. This has happened to me before. Uh, and that's why I think, Reed, I know people who are looking to listening to your show or who are listening to this show from out of the country and they're looking for some help from somebody who has the international experience to invest in real estate in the United States from an outsider's perspective. Uh, it, it's really important that you listen to guys like Reed that you, that you, I don't know if you do any coaching or mentoring yourself, Reed, but I think, uh, it's important to hook up with people like that. Exactly. Surround yourself with good people. And um, it was funny. I, I, I digress a little bit. No, the show's wrapping up. But I, I had a lady one time come to me and said, oh, well, the, the spreadsheet, the numbers turn green. So I think it's a good deal. And I said, uh. <laughs> I said, come with me. Let's have a sit down and look at why, <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> well, yeah, I've seen programs before like uh, that you can buy that it's not like the stock market. You know, if if it's red, that means bad. If it's yellow, that means hold. If it's green, means buy or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just not like no. that. And, and you know, Alex's deal that we were just talking about, I mean, there's lots of different things you could do with that, Alex. And I think you need to look at your risk tolerance and what's the worst that could happen. Right. And part of the reason why I so quickly said I think you should just sell it and get rid of it is um, my risk tolerance is maybe not – as as high as yours because there's a lot of things that could go wrong and if something goes wrong on a uh on a three hundred thousand dollar house do you do you want to be on the hook for making that mortgage payment well while here's the thing it will cash flow right. and for me to rent it at a break even is is very easy right so and the in the you're in a position too where you're smart enough now because you've made <laughs> we've made the same mistakes. You're smart enough now to hold a reserve on the yeah on yeah. It's not like I'm going to be like oh I gotta see if I can you know have enough money here to see if I can make these payments if things go wrong. No, you know it's that's not the problem. Right. You need to have at least three months. I would say maybe six months of reserves for any kind of rental property. You yeah. Own. Yeah, that's excellent. 
So let us know what you do with this deal on the next podcast. Yeah, if we, probably if gonna get rid of it because you know anytime I go down the lease option route or um, the you know uh, rent to own with a with a uh, with a tenant in it and stuff like that, I'm I just start to think, oh man, nah, I think I'll just get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you do you own any rental properties right now? I actually, um, my my partner in Richmond and I actually, yeah, we we um, we own two, and they actually, I think we've bought them for like ten and twenty thousand dollars, and the cash flow uh, we don't have we don't owe anything on them, and our cash flow is like fifteen hundred dollars a month from it. Wow, wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. If you find any, if you find any more of those deals, let uh, Reed know. Yeah, he's got some buyers for you. Yeah. I'll buy it from you. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, see, that's why we keep we'll, we keep those. If it's if it's something like that, we'll just we just keep it. <laughs> yeah, don't give it to anyone else. <laughs> well, this has been an entertaining show. I got one last question for you, Reed. Sure. And I've always wondered this. And I'm a little embarrassed to ask. Do you when when you go to the Outback Steakhouse? Oh, no. <laughs> does it remind you of home? Is it like wow, this is really good, authentic Australian uh, food? You want to know something funny that um my my girlfriend's dad bought oh, Erica uh, bought bought her a like a fifty dollar gift voucher because when she moved back to us when she moved to Australia to complete her studies back in whenever it was two thousand and. Ten. She gave her a. He gave her a, a gift card. There's no there's, Outback Steakhouse doesn't exist in Australia. It's an American product, and yeah. I've never been, so I can't tell you. <laughs> oh, you haven't? No, no, You've I've never been. Never had a blooming onion. That's so American. <laughs> you got to do it. A blooming onion, love it. <laughs> I because I've I've wondered too. Like, do, do Australians eat blooming onions? I I don't. Do they, I, I, I could imagine that. Is that a, like a, a, a battered piece a of onion? Is that? Thunder from down under. <laughs> <laughs> I love the marketing. Uh, I've never heard of a chocolate thunder from down under. Is, if they serve Vegemite and if they serve Tim Tams, then you're truly, truly Australian yeah. and I'll, I'll have to get there. But uh, if they, they just make up blooming onions, I'll have to go. I'm, how about shrimp on the barbie? Yeah, we go. There we go. Some shrimp on the barbie. That's it. Or we like to call them prawns in Australia. And okay, so we've got to, okay. So when I go into the store sometimes, I'm like, oh, where are your prawns? And they're like, what are you talking about, you crazy? <laughs> Probably the only Australian thing at Outback is the beer. I think they do sell Australian beer. Fantastic. That's that's probably it. But they're good. It's good food. The steaks are really good. I don't know if you're a vegetarian. No, not, not at all. I love my steak. Oh, well, yeah, it's very, Outback very has, reasonably priced. Right. Yeah, and it's really good steak. They put a ton of seasoning on it. All right. So now One. Outback has to pay us since we advertise. But <laughs> and, I, and I, I have to. I need to Go hop ahead. off. <laughs> all right, Alex. Take care, guys. Bye. Thanks. What were you going to say, Reed? I was just going to say that uh, next time I speak to you guys, I will I will have been to an Outback Steakhouse and I'll give you my report. <laughs> well, if anybody listening to this show it works with Outback and you're looking for a show to sponsor, <laughs> you need to sponsor Reed's show. Yeah, the Aussie show. Yeah, the Aussie show. And uh, that's a great idea. You could get Outback to be your sponsor on your podcast. Oh, that's a very, very good idea. The Australians would have no, no idea. No idea. No idea. <laughs> what, what, what they exactly. are. But that's funny. There's there's no outback in Australia. That's probably, yeah, that's funny. It, it is a good restaurant. You should go there. Get the blue sure and thing. onion. Let me know would you whether it's if it's anything close to what Aussies really eat. And- I'm sure it is. I'm sure we love steak. We love beer. We love deep fried stuff and chocolate. It's all. It's probably it's probably all good stuff. <laughs> 
Oh, it's been fun. It's been a good show. Reed, how do people find out about you? And you have a website? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so my, my my business is RSN Property Group. That's R for Roger, S for Sam, N for Nancy, propertygroup.com. That's my business. You can find out about my podcast on there or you can go to iTunes and find out uh, Investing in the US and Aussie's Guide to US Real Estate. And if anyone just wants to you know, chat, I'm always available. You can shoot me an email at reed, R-E-E-D, at rsnpropertygroup.com and I'm always available to just have a yarn and talk about real estate because that's what I love talking about. Excellent. Reed, you've been a great host. I'm a yes. guest. <laughs> <laughs> you were a great host on the show I was exactly. on, on yours the other day. Thanks, so uh, I look forward to uh, continuing our friendship and learning more about – I'd love to go to Australia someday if it wasn't so stinking far away. From LA, it's not that far. It'd be the same, you know. It's not that far. It's only a thirteen-hour flight. We should, uh, we should, we should get. We, oh my! We should, uh, we should go and sell some lease options in Australia because uh, Amer- Australians would love it. Only thirteen-hour flight. <laughs> that's, that's nothing. Couple of sleep. Do you have? So when you're flying, does like an airplane come and fuel your airplane while you're flying? How does planes just, fly? That I think long? the longest flight is um, Houston to uh, like Hong Kong or something like that. That's like. 16 hours it's something it's something really really but australia is still a long way the la to direct la to brisbane or la to sydney that's about 13 hours and that's easy you take a couple of sleeping pills and just don't watch any movies uh for about two months prior to the trip because there's going to be everything you can (laughs) possibly imagine on that flight uh and you just sit back and enjoy the ride one of these days one of these days i'm going to uh, i want to go there with my family Uh, one of the things i'd love to do i've heard is really amazing is to rent an rv while you're in Australia and just go camping. Yeah, it's exactly like the United States. And that's why we get a lot of uh, tourism from America is because, you know, we're an English-speaking country. It's very similar. Besides you driving on the wrong side, the wrong side of the road, the different side of the road, uh, it's the same sort of things. We've got beautiful national parks, beaches. You can pull up and just, you know, camp and have a, you know, have a, there's a cold shower and, you know, anywhere along the coast of Australia. So it's, it's, it's really, really fun. And I know that you were telling me on, on my show that you, you and your family did that. So it'd be right up your, your alley. So definitely check it out. Hopefully I could rent an RV big enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got a, you've got a clan of, of kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. Four kids. Yep, yep. All right. Hey, Reed, thank you very My much. My pleasure, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, guys, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com. If you like this show, if you like our podcast, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Let us know what you think about this show. Let us know if you don't like it or even if you do like it. We'd love the reviews in iTunes, and it helps us with the rankings in iTunes just so that we can get more exposure and more people can hear great interviews like the one we just did with Reed. So leave us a review in iTunes, please. We'd really appreciate it. And if you want our Fast Cash Survival Kit, Go to realestateinvestingmastery.com. Click the link there. I even have a link on there. If you're interested in getting some coaching, uh, I, do, uh, I have a coaching program called Automated Wholesaling that talks a lot about how I wholesale deals while traveling around the world, and it's, it's pretty cool. So if you go to realestateinvestingmastery.com, you'll see a link there for a, like a banner on automated wholesaling, or you could also go to automatedwholesaling.com to get more information about that. All right, take care, guys. See you, Reed. See you, mate. 